please turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we continue to walk through uh, Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, churches that he founded along with Barnabas and perhaps some, some others. We have talked about how this letter divides easily into really just three parts, and we're in the middle of it right now. It's coming to the end of the second part, that chapters 1 and 2, Paul establishes his authority as an apostle to speak to these churches, even though um, he had been the one to bring the gospel to them. There have been some Jewish missionaries following behind him, uh, questioning his authority, and in the first two chapters, he reestablishes that. Chapters 3 and 4, he expounds the gospel. He tells them why what they're thinking about doing of going back or going forward actually into Judaism and circumcision and we'll see today remembering days and times the Jewish practices that um, that is actually subtracting from the gospel that Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. Then he's going to tell us in chapters 5 and 6 that in light of the gospel, in light of God's grace in our life, we are to live a certain way. We are to live with the inheritance that we have, the spirit that is within us, and we are to walk by the spirit. And so we come to chapter 4 today, and we've been in chapter 3 and 4 for uh, a few weeks, and we've seen Paul's previous arguments. He he presents an argument from history. He tells them, remember your own history. Remember what it was like when you came to Christ. Was it by the law or was it by the Spirit? The obvious answer to them should be it was by the Spirit because we didn't know anything about the law when we came to Christ. And then he gives them a do, uh, uh, an argument from Scripture and he takes the Old Testament passages and he, he shows them that in the Old Testament, justification was the same then as today. It was by faith alone, that a man was considered righteous. He gave them a, an argument from daily life. He talked about uh, contracts and wills and, and how that is a picture of, of what Jesus has done and what was shown through Abraham. He gave a theological argument. He talked about how we should read the Bible, that we read the Bible from the unconditional um, contract that God made with Abraham to the unconditional uh, covenant of the new covenant of Jesus Christ, whose blood was the mark of that covenant. And then he talked about the gospel last week. We talked about uh, adoption, of being sons of God. And it was really uh, just a statement of the gospel. In the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons, so that they might be part of God's family, children of God, sons of God, and daughters of God. And today we come to um, a very special passage. It's, a, it's really a transition uh, from what he talked about last week of being sons of God into um, an emotional passage. He's, he's talked about all these arguments and, and given them the facts. And, and we don't base our salvation on emotion, but Paul becomes very emotional in this passage. It's a transition. It is an emotional appeal. He has appealed to 
to their minds, and now he's going to appeal to their heart. In chapter 1, he began chapter 1 by um, telling them how astonished he was that they had so quickly deserted the call of God's grace in their life, but he calls them he calls them brothers in chapter 1. I'm astonished, brothers and sisters, that you have done this. We are, we are related through Christ. And in chapter 3, he becomes um, pretty stern with them. He, he says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he goes through all of the arguments of why they have been bewitched and how foolish they are being. And he comes now, after all of those arguments, to verses 8 through 20. And he calls them again brothers in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you. I beg you. And in verse 19, he says, My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth. This is an emotional appeal by Paul. It's very personal. And it's very emotional. And we need to let that emotion rest on us. Because if we don't understand the emotion that Paul is, is expressing here, I think we'll miss Paul. We will miss uh, what I would call the pastor's heart in Paul, his love for these people. And so in these verses, uh, 8 through 20, we want to see uh, today really uh, three reasons, three reasons to never give up on a struggling brother or sister. Three reasons Paul did not give up on the Galatians. And we begin with the first one in, in verses 8 through 11. And the first one is God chose them. Paul did not give up on them because God chose them. He begins in verse 8, and this is, these verses are really transitional from verses 1 through 7, uh, leading into uh, the appeal in verses 12 through 20. Uh, but he begins with this very um, this transition from the idea of sonship or adoption to this very personal appeal that he will begin in 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 verse eight that Paul um, is appealing to their heart to understand that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing else. So he begins. With these words, formerly you did not know God. You were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. He's just finished talking about being adopted into the family of God. And now he, trans, he contrasts um, his claim about being sons of God with their former life. As sons of God, they were taken out of another family the devil's family, and they were put into a different family, God's family. And if you remember what we talked about, adoption was a different idea than what we think of adoption today. It wasn't uh, simply taking a child who had no parents and putting them in a home who, where there were parents. It was actually removing them from a home where there were parents and putting them into a home and giving them a, a, a position of responsibility. And we talked about a number of the emperors were adopted. And he said, you're going from being a child to being a son. Being a son, meaning you have a position, a prized position in the family of God. And in verse 8, he tells them, 
you did not previously know God. You're sons of God, but you didn't know God. You were enslaved to what he calls not gods. You were enslaved to not gods. That's simply a description of someone who is not a believer. In 2 Thessalonians verse, uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 8, gives us an idea, a bit of an idea of what he's talking about. In verse 8, he says, uh, speaking the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying if someone does not know God, that person is not a believer. In Titus, Titus uh, chapter 1, verse 16, he says something very similar they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Someone who claims to know God, but doesn't know God, they are not a believer. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says they're, they're alienated from God. In verse, verse 17, now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from life of God because of their ignorance. They don't know because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Paul's saying, you are unbelievers. You were, you were enslaved to these not gods. He talks about that in, in Romans chapter 1. He gives us, uh, a little bit more description in Romans chapter 1 verse uh, verse 18 it says for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, in what way did they know God? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise they became fools. They created non-gods. They created gods that were not God. People talk about knowing God, but in reality, most people that we talk about who have some idea of God, they do not know God because they don't know of whom they speak. And in verse 9, he continues, but now you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. You have moved from a state of not knowing God to knowing God. You, have, you were not Christians, now you are Christians. But it's interesting, Paul immediately corrects himself or, or adds to what he is saying. He corrects this view of salvation, of knowing God, and he says, or rather to be known by God. 
You are known by God. It's very interesting here, and I don't want to make a big deal of this, um, but he uses two different words for, for knowing. And when he says you do not know God, he uses a word that talks about knowing, knowing facts or, or knowing certain things about certain things. And when he says you do know God or you are known by God, he's using a word that means an intimate relationship. Now, I don't know if that's on, on purpose, and, and he could have used uh, different words meaning really the same thing, but he, here he uses a word that, that was used of, of Cain, when Cain knew his wife and she conceived in Genesis chapter 4. In Matthew 1, it's used of Joseph. Joseph did not know Mary. There was no intimate relationship. This is a word that talks about intimacy between someone and God. You know God, but God, God knows you, and God has intimately known you. It's the language of election, isn't it? That when God knows someone, he chooses them. Amos 3.2 says, only Israel have I known. God knew there were other nations. It's not like God, God created the nations. He knew the nations, but he says, only Israel do I have an intimate relationship with. He said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I have chosen you, Jeremiah, for this purpose. I have had an intimate relationship with you before you were formed in the womb. I chose you. I have elected you to do this particular task. What's he talking about? This is a way of expressing God's grace as the foundation of the Galatians' relationship to Christ. And Paul's saying, how foolish, how foolish is it that you would turn from the grace of God, the God who has elected you, the God who knows you intimately, how foolish would it be for you now to turn against him by being circumcised? We do not come to know God. We come to know God only because God chooses to know us first. 1 John 4, 9, this is love, not that, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God chose us. If you are a believer in here, God chose you. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's a picture there of, of uh, a fishing uh, word, of drawing in the nets. The net is full and the fishermen are drawing them in. What are the fish trying to do? They're trying to get out of the net. That's how we are. But God loves us. He knows us. He chooses us. He draws us. And he goes on in verse 9. Or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Notice how foolish to go back into slavery after you have been freed. No one would do that. To go back to something that is weak and something that is 
worthless, the elementary principles of the world. And we talked about that. He talked about that in chapter 4, verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Different ideas of what that could be. It could be uh, spiritual realities um, behind the idols. It could be simply the elements of, of uh, the physical world, uh, fire and water and air and dirt. It could be that those things that they make the idols of, whatever it is, I, I think for, for the Jew, it is the law. For the Gentile, it is the idol. And he says, you are going back to what you were freed from. This is an astonishing statement by Paul when you think about that. You've got to think through what he's saying here. What is he saying? The elements refer to Galatian practices before their conversion to Christianity. You're going back to those things. But that's not what they're going back to, is it? What are they going back to? They are, they are in the process of listening to the Jewish missionaries. They're in the process of converting to Judaism. We could say here that, that Paul is equating Judaism to paganism. Paul is a Jew himself. He's saying to go forward into Judaism is like going backwards into heathenism for these Galatians. I think at a minimum... What he's saying is that being under the law, since the time of the law has ended and the promised seed has come and Christ has died, that's like returning to a worthless pagan religion. He's saying that every human being is captive to the elementary principles of the world in some way. And the only way to get out of that is to be set free by Jesus Christ. And he's saying, God has chosen you for this. He goes on in verse 11 and says, what are they going back to? Verse 10 and 11, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've, made, I've labored over you in vain. What are these days and months? Well, I think he's referring in the context to the Jewish calendar. There's some, some different opinions there, but it seems logical that he's talking about the days and the months and the festivals, the Jewish festivals. He's talking about you need to become Jewish in order, in order for your faith in Christ to actually mean something. But it's interesting that in the New Testament, none of those things are required. As a matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, he says this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. None of those are required in the New Testament. That, that is not a way to get to God. The way to get to God is faith alone. And he says, I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. Going back to these things from which God wants to save you, I feel like I've wasted my time. What is he saying? I think he's saying, if you were to go back to these things, how can you do that after you have embraced salvation? I think what he's saying is, you're acting like unbelievers, and maybe you are. 
that you are sons of God. You are heirs of God. And being heirs of God, you are in possession of everything that God has for you. And if you leave, if you walk away, if you, if you go into Judaism, it's as though you were never a believer. And he, he says that, doesn't he, in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were never of us. They were never part of us. Paul's saying, you are sons of God. God has chosen you. God knows you intimately. How could you ever, how could you ever walk away from that? And his fear and his frustration now turns to a plea. In verses 12 through 18, the second reason Paul doesn't give up on them is that Paul loves them. It's an emotional passage to convince the Galatians to listen to him again. You listened to me the first time, you need to listen to me again. And what I love about this is that the Bible is a book of reality. It's not um, stories that we just enjoy. It, it, is, it is reality, and part of reality is emotion. And Paul is emotional in this passage, and we need to, we need to feel this as he, as he says these words. Paul is appealing to their hearts. In verse 20, he says, Brothers, I entreat you. Brothers, I am begging you. My little children. You know, we often think of Paul as a, a parent, and he talks about that quite often. He, he talks about being a father in a number of, of places, a spiritual father. He was Timothy's spiritual father. In 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 4, verse 15, he, he actually says this to uh, the Corinthians. Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as a, my beloved children. You are my children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul often talks about himself and describes himself as their spiritual father. Those who have trusted in Christ through his ministry, he feels like he is their, their father, their spiritual father as a result of his ministry. He uses that metaphor to describe his love for those who are under his care, but not only that, but, but also the responsibility that he feels for them, and also the authority to speak into their life. So we understand that, but mother? Paul as a mother... The only other place we find that is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. He says this, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother caring for her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. A nursing mother. A nursing mother is, is there to to feed her child, to, uh, to uh, let her child grow. And that mother would give of herself, good everything of herself, for that child to grow. But a pregnant mother giving birth, and we have uh, five or six ladies in our church who have recently experienced that. 
That is something special. That is a determination to do anything you can do to get that baby out and born. Even at your, the risk of your own health. And when that happens, there's so much joy and an emotional reaction, even though of all of the pain that you have gone through. And Paul is just laying it all out there. He's saying, he's saying I feel like I am giving birth to you. Why? Because he wants his argument to be made. He wants them to understand. He wants them to, to turn. And right now, he doesn't know what that choice is going to be. He doesn't know what they're going to choose. And he said, I, will, I would give it all. I will give everything I have if you will just return to Christ and Christ alone. The verse 12, second part of verse 12, he says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Become as I am because uh, I, I became like you. What, is that, what does that mean? Well, he's putting uh, great emphasis on this because in, in, in the Greek language, whatever's at the beginning of the sentence, that's the emphasis of, of what he's going to say. And this is, actually comes before, brothers, I entreat you. He says, be as I am uh, because I became like you, brothers, I entreat you. Whatever he is saying, this is important. Become like me as I became like you. This is the first command that he's given them. The first thing he has told them that they need to do in this letter. What does he mean? I think he simply means, I left Judaism, I left the law as a means to God, and I need you to become as I am. I became like you not under the law, you need to become like me, someone who has left the law. In chapter 1, verse 13, he insinuates that. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church and violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father, of our fathers. But I've given that all up. Perhaps the most famous um, saying of Paul in that regards is Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. He's actually talking about the same thing. He talks about, watch out for the dogs. Who are the dogs? Those are the Judaizers, the people who are trying to get you to uh, circumcise yourself. He says, look out for them. He says, for we are the circumcision, the spiritual circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God. And then he says in verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. I think a double meaning there, not only circumcision, confidence in the flesh, but in works. I, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, if that could happen, blameless. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Literally, I count them as dung. I count them as garbage. He's appealing to their heart. This is the key appeal, I, I think, in this paragraph. He's saying, how foolish for the Galatians to go the other way and not become like Paul and put law and Christ together, thereby nullifying, nullifying Christ altogether. At the end of verse 12, he says, you've done me, you've done me no wrong. In other words, uh, I think what he's saying is, you know, you, you didn't feel this way when I was with you in, in Galatia. You didn't uh, criticize my law-free lifestyle when I was with you. Rather, you rejoiced in my law-free lifestyle. In Acts chapter 13 and 14, uh, we're not going to go through this in detail, but let me just read you a couple of verses to give you an idea of what Paul is is really saying in chapter 13 and 14, his first missionary journey when uh, the churches, I believe, uh, Paul is, is writing to. Um, chapter 13, verse 48, he had just talked about sharing the gospel, and he says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and many were appointed to eternal life and believed. Chapter 14, verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, and poisoned their mind against their brothers. Verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered him up, he rose, he rose up and entered the city. Then verse 21, When they had preached the gospel to that city and, and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, all the churches that he had founded, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith and saying to that through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of heaven. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul saying, you did me no harm. You accepted everything that we said and we appointed elders and, and you were on your own and, and we were leaving. You've done me no harm. What happened? Verses 13 and 14. This is what happened. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God and as Christ Jesus. That's how you received me. Now, I don't know what this bodily ailment was. They're different. You may have a version that says illness. It could have been an illness, something that was malaria, an area um, where malaria was prominent, and perhaps Paul had to stay in bed for a while, and when he's feeling better, he's preaching. We don't know. Some say it was an eye problem, and we know that eye problems can result from uh, malaria, uh, and they base it on, on verse 15, um, when, when they, um, what then has become of your blessedness? Um, if it was possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me, thinking, you know, this is, 
this is an eye problem. Yeah, I think maybe he was there was saying something like we say, you would have given your right arm. It, it may not have been an eye problem. I wonder if it had something to do with his stoning. And I have no proof of this, but um, this is one of the opinions that he had stopped there. He was stoned. They thought he was dead. He had a beaten, bruised, bloodied body. And they accepted him. And he possibly used that as a as a, an example of Christ crucified. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, it was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Perhaps he said, look at my body. Christ is much worse than what I have gone through. We don't know. But whatever it was, there was something about Paul that could have caused them to reject him. But it was the providence of God it was the sovereignty of God that this ailment, this bodily ailment was brought upon Paul for this time to preach the gospel to the Galatians. Now we think of that and, and if you were a Jew, you would say that's impossible because God would never allow that for uh, one of his uh, apostles. If you look in the Old Testament at, at what, a, what a priest was to be, a priest was to be um, without blemish and blameless and, and certain things about the priest. And Jews would say, well, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And, and if a servant is beaten, that proves that he's not of God anyway. And these Gentiles probably would have felt the same way. You remember the story of, of Paul on Malta? And um, they were, this was after the shipwreck. They were all soaking wet. And they had to build a fire, and the natives were there, and Paul went to gather some wood, and the viper attached to his arm. What did they say? This man must be a criminal. He can't be a man of God. They would have had the same idea that, that this can't be. Doesn't speak well for the uh, health and wealth movement that Paul had a bodily ailment in the providence of God. Bob talked about that this morning in, in the Bible study hour, that, that God uh, allows things for other things to happen at times. And he may allow illnesses for us, but we must be convinced that when something comes that is negative, that God is still in control, God is still sovereign. And if we don't get that here, if we don't, uh, if we aren't grounded in that here, in the nice, comfortable, air-conditioned, soft seats, when the hard time comes, we're not going to be grounded in it then. Because that's not the time when you need to be reminded, well, remember what we talked about, God is sovereign, because you're, if you don't believe that now, you're not going to believe that then. He goes on, verse 15. He says, where's your blessing? Where is it? You were thriving. Church was growing. There was joy, there was peace, there was security, there was, there was a, a settled faith, there was, there was happiness. If what you're doing is right, where is your blessedness? Paul says, you would have done anything for me. You would have given me your right arm. You would have given me your eye. And now you hate me because I'm telling you the truth. What did he say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3? Remember that? He said, um, they're gonna, there's going to be a time when people are going to want you to tickle their ears with what you say. They're not going to want to listen to the truth. And if we tell the truth, people are going to.
to hate us. Verses 17 and 18, Paul targets the problem. He talks about the, the false teachers. And so basically, you know, the false teachers, they, they're really good speakers and they're very flattering. And Paul says, um, but why? Why were they so kind to you? And he says in, in, in these verses, he gives the reason why they were so kind to them. And it's because it's all about them. It's all about making you their disciples. It's all about you uh, worshiping them rather than God. Verse 17, I think, describes really every false religion. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out from God that you may make much of them. That is every. Why do you think the J-dubs come to your door? To make much of them. They're doing this because of works. What's the difference? Well, Paul says, you know, we do something similar. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Not only when I'm present with you, it's good to be made much of for a good purpose. What is, what is that good purpose? The good purpose is when it's about God and when it's about Christ and it's not about me. It's about saving sinners from hell, God saving sinners from hell. It's about making helpless people uh, hopeful. It's about making sinners saints. It's about uh, making enemies of God and asking them to become friends of God. It's about God. Paul says the Galatians are chosen by God. Paul loves these people. And finally, Paul talks about his greatest desire in verses 19 and 20. His greatest desire. My little children, who again I'm in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul's greatest desire is that Christ will be formed in them. And I think this is his main point in this section. Why is that his greatest desire? Because that's the only way they're not going to be persuaded over and over by any false teacher who comes in. Christ needs to be formed in them. The goal of Christianity is not heaven. The goal of Christianity is not, I'm going to escape fire. Paul says the goal of Christianity is, is right now. The goal of Christianity is being formed, that Christ is formed in you. And it's interesting, that's a medical term for uh, the word embryo. So the, the picture that he's given us of a mother is not, not far off. It's a metaphor of, of labor. It's a metaphor of, of emotion. And Paul wants to birth mature Christians. He's talking about sanctification. Let Christ be formed in you. Really, he's saying, again, imitate me. Because in chapter 2, verse 20, he says this. I've been crucified with Christ. For Christ to be formed in me is to die as, as Paul died. 
It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's saying, this is what having Christ formed in you looks like. Why is that so hard for us? Well, it's because we're good at obeying laws. It, it makes us feel good. It, it feeds my pride. Law goes well with pride. Law is a means of me enjoying my pride. I can say, you know, I've been in church every, every week. I read my Bible regularly. I, I pray daily. I do all these things, and I check off the list. But Paul contrasts that, doesn't he? Verse 17, he contrasts verse 17 with verse 19. He says, they make much of you for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. They want you for themselves. The motive of the Judaizers is, is the praise of men. That's the same motive of the law, is to be praised by men, telling the Galatians that they're going to be shut out if they don't follow them. But then he goes to, to verse 19, and he says that Christ may be formed in you. What's the difference? The difference is Christ. The difference is the emphasis is on Christ. Chapter 1, Paul says, am I seeking the favor of men or of God? I'm seeking the favor of God. So what does it mean that Christ is formed in us? It means that we are shaped by the indwelling Christ. It means Romans 12, 2, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's changing your values, changing the way you look at life. It's the life of Jesus made manifest in you and in me. It's people looking at us and seeing Christ. John Piper put it this way. Cut Paul and he will bleed Jesus. How's that happen? Well, in verse 6 of chapter 4, he says this, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We have the Spirit within us. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says, he says this, does the one who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's right back to where he started. He says, if you are a son, you have the Spirit. And God sends, sends the Spirit into your life, how? Through faith. That if you believe in him, you have what you need. There's a, there's a continual supply that Christ supplies you continually. And, and living Christ happens by no other way but faith. And there's one other thing. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 17. He's talking about the disciples and says, Father, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I want you to sanctify them. I want you to sanctify them how? By your word. Because your word is truth. So he's given us everything. He's given us the spirit. And we exercise the Spirit by faith, and He's giving us His Word to know how to grow. I'm so glad for Providence Church and, and Providence Church elders. You know, people, you have elders who, who want nothing more than this, that, that Christ is formed in each individual of Providence Church. Uh, I've been asked occasionally, you know, what do you do to make your, to make your church grow? What's your church growth method? And this is it. 
that Christ is formed in every person at Providence Church. That's why discipleship is so important. That's why we have men and women who are studying together and meeting together, that Christ is formed in Providence Church. Do we bleed Christ? If we say no, then maybe we need to ask, are we known by God? And if we say, yeah, I am known by God and, and I'm not perfect, but I strive to live for Christ, I strive to show Christ, then the next question comes, then we need to love others just like Paul loved the Galatians. And we need to strive that every person in Providence Church has Christ formed in them. We need to be people who bleed Christ. It's done by the Spirit, it's done by faith, it's done through the Word. Matthew Henry put it this way, and I, I close with this. None can know their election. None can know their election but by their conformity to Christ. For all who are chosen are chosen to sanctification. May God grant that for a Providence Church. May we be people who are, have Christ formed in them. May we be people who show Christ to others. May we be people who bleed Christ. Not perfect. Paul says, things I know to do, I don't do. Things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. We, we struggle. But where are we striving? Paul says he strives for the day when Christ returns, when Christ will be fully formed in us. Until that day, we live in an era of time in, in, in the old and in the new. We live in, in that tension and we strive to have Christ formed in us. May we be those people.